I'm always delighted um, and look forward um, to participating in these Taubman Endowed Jewish Studies Symposia because I have the great fortune of meeting extraordinary people uh, every quarter, uh, year in and year out. Um, introducing them to you, the faculty and students and members of our community who are so important. However, tonight I have a particularly great honor in introducing to you Professor Alvin H. Rosenfeld. Alvin Rosenfeld is Professor of English and Director, as uh, Rabbi Cohen has already said, uh, told you, of the Institute of Jewish Culture and Arts at Indiana University. And he is also the Director of Indiana University's Robert A. and Sandra S. Bourne Jewish Studies Program. Um, we can say much more about his role as builder of Jewish studies, um, not only at Indiana University, but also, indeed, across the nation. The Indiana University Jewish Studies Program is now completing its 31st year, and Alvin Rosenfeld has been its founding and sole director over its entire history. He will immediately correct me, um, from his modesty, but he is one of the most highly regarded pioneers in the field of Jewish studies. And he and his colleagues have built what is arguably the most successful program in Jewish studies in the nation. Um, he told us yesterday that they have 80 majors in Jewish studies, 17 faculty members, um, three and a half of them are involved in language studies. Hebrew. Um, and more than 2,000 students every year take their courses. This is a titanic achievement. Um, and in conjunction with his building of the nation's premier Jewish studies program, he also has made a major contribution to uh, making Indiana University Press into one of the nation's most prestigious university presses in the publication of Judaica. A year ago, Indiana University recognized his accomplishments by giving him the university's most distinguished honor. In 2003, he was made the Distinguished Service Award winner of Indiana University. That award acknowledges his leadership, his dedication, his exceptional contributions over the past 30 years to his university and to the larger community. And indeed, he lives in a larger community. That community is indeed so large that in 1992, he was appointed by President George W. Bush to the United States Holocaust Memorial Council, which oversees and advises the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. He has also served on the editorial boards of many scholarly journals, including Holocaust and Genocide Studies, Shofar, American Poetry Review, and he has served on the boards of many Jewish institutions and organizations, including the Anti-Defamation League, the American Jewish Committee, the Lilly Endowment, the Wexner Heritage Foundation, the Court Foundation, the National Polish American Jewish American Council, and the, Amer the Academic Committee of Brown University and Indiana University. I must tell you also 
that next Monday night in Bloomington, Indiana, a dinner will take place again recognize him, him for more than his 30 years of service as chair of the Jewish Studies program at Indiana University. Uh, again, recognizing his exceptional research, his teaching, and his service to his community. I hope, Alvin, that you allow us to wish you an early congratulations. Yashir Koach. Now, this, this recognition, this recognition um, acknowledging his distinguished service, um, is in great part the result of his scholarship. I think that the first book of his that I read was his powerful Imagining Hitler, which he published in 1985. There he sought to uncover how the imagination of Nazism is manifested in popular representations of the Nazi Fuhrer, and I think even more importantly, and the reason why I used it in a class, the power that evil continues to occupy and fascinate us with. He wrote that in he wrote in the introduction to that book that what he sought to do, quote, is to point out some of the consequences of what is at one and the same time an imaginative obsession, an imaginative nature failure. Hitler, he continues, one comes to understand simultaneously, haunts and defies contemporary imagination, which we respect with respect to the whole Nazi past, seems drawn between a willed forgetfulness and a kind of mythologizing memory. As a consequence, the ghost of Hitler has been set free from the strictures of historical consciousness and enjoys a second life through art. Among his other books are Confronting the Holocaust, The Impact of Elie Wiesel, a Double Dying, Reflections on Holocaust Literature, published in 1988, and Thinking About the Holocaust After Half a Century in 1997. That last book, Thinking About the Holocaust, is an edited collection which includes many of the most important scholars on the Holocaust uh, as, as well as, I think, a very important contribution by him on the Americanization of the Holocaust. I still think that that essay of his, which has been reprinted as a separate monograph, is among the most important studies published to date on the intersections between American history and culture and the Shoah. More recently, he has taken up the resurgence of anti-Semitism, perhaps in new old forms. The American Jewish Committee has published his monographs, Anti-Americanism and Anti-Semitism, A New Frontier of Bigotry, and also his anti-Zionism in Great Britain and beyond, a respectable anti-Semitism. Tonight, Professor Rosenfeld takes up how memory shapes the Anne Frank we remember. Please now join me in welcoming Alvin H. Rosenfeld. Thank you all so much. Um, tomorrow I get on a plane and leave paradise and return to my reality in Indiana. My reality in Indiana is a very good reality, but I must say a few days in 
Santa Barbara doesn't feel bad at all. Uh, special thanks to Richard Hecht, to Leonard Wallach and their colleagues and to so many other people who've received me in such a warm and amiable way. And if invited back, I threaten to say yes. In fact. Um, can you all hear me okay in the back? Uh, I want to speak with you tonight about the archetypal victim of the Holocaust, and Frank. Uh, in a way, this is the obverse of my studies of Hitler, uh, the great perpetrator of the Holocaust. And in studying Hitler, I was especially interested in what we might call Hitler's posthumous career, the Hitler after 1945, or the Hitler who lives on within a certain Nazi mystique that itself uh, ominously continues. In studying Anne Frank, I'm also interested very much in the afterlife or posthumous career of that uh, tragic young girl. Um, and I especially want to share with you a number of thoughts about how we remember her. Um, and I hope at the end of my talk we'll have a chance to talk together about some of the issues that I'll be putting before you. We are now some 60 years after the deaths of millions of Jews in the ghettos, camps, and killing fields of Nazi-occupied Europe. During this time, we've learned a great deal about these victims and those who made them victims. And while major questions still remain to be answered, our knowledge base is, in fact, a large one. My aim this evening, though, is not to return to the historical record of this massive crime, but to raise with you one or two questions about how this history gets transmitted and remembered. With reference to the victims, whose names and stories have been copiously recorded, why is it that one name and one story continue to have a resonance that none of the others comes close to matching. I refer, of course, to Anne Frank, who for decades now has been singled out as the preeminent victim of the Holocaust, the one who, above all others, has given a face and a name to the catastrophe visited upon the Jews of Hitler's Europe. My questions, simply put, are these. Who is the Anne Frank we remember? And why is it that among the more than one million Jewish children destroyed by the Nazis, it is she who has emerged as such a commanding presence? My answer, also simply put, no doubt too simply put, is this. The Anne Frank we remember is the Anne Frank we want to remember. Let me explain. Ever since its initial publication in 1947, Anne Frank's story has circulated more widely than any other personal narrative from the Second World War. Translated to date into some 60 languages and published in something like 25 million copies, it has reached a huge audience of readers around the world. In addition, the figure of Anne Frank has been transformed and transmitted through a broad range of other popular media, 
to the point where it's no exaggeration to say that Anne Frank is very likely the best-known child of the 20th century. Her only possible rival, it seems to me, might be Shirley Temple. (laughs) The ubiquity of her story, then, can be taken as a given. What is not entirely clear is why it remains so popular and why particular images of Anne Frank and not other images continue to be favored. To repeat my question, therefore, with a slight twist, who is the Anne Frank we choose to remember? I say choose quite intentionally, for there's been a multiplicity of Anne Franks to choose among. One in particular, though, has been elevated above all others, namely the Anne Frank who stands as a positive symbol of articulate innocence and transcendent optimism in a world of brutal and ultimately lethal adversity. One can find grounds for this sense of Anne Frank in the diary, to be sure, but it hardly encompasses the whole of her self-presentation, nor was it the image of the girl that necessarily prevailed among the diary's earliest readers. Het Achterhaus, as the book was called in its original Dutch publication, first appeared two years after the end of the war, when memories of the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands were still painfully fresh. Many people wanted to move beyond the horrors of those times, and it was thought would not look at the book at all, so it's understandable that Otto Frank had a hard time finding a publisher for it. When Contact, a small Amsterdam publishing house, did bring out the book, the initial audience was relatively small, as was the initial print run. Some Dutch readers found in Anne's story a disturbing echo of their own wartime deprivations, and they were not moved to read the book as anything like a triumph over suffering. Rather, in the words of Jan Romain, a well-regarded professor of Dutch history at the time, who published the first significant notice of the diary, there were reasons to regard Anne Frank's story in a pessimistic light, for it described in his words the real hideousness of fascism and showed that we have lost the battle against the beast in man. Romain's Romaine saw Anne Frank's story as a dark one, and he valued it primarily as a historical document that revealed important truths about political dimensions of the Nazi catastrophe. Other readers, however, were more inclined to respond to the diary as a moving personal testament. They admired the honesty and the courage of the child's voice, They reacted favorably to her lively intelligence and quickness of spirit, and they believed the diarist expressed a message of hope that transcended the misery of the events she recorded. Not surprisingly, therefore, one observes right from the start differing responses to the book and the presence in it of contested meanings. After a relatively short time, however, the range of interpretations began to narrow, 
and soon gave way to more fixed or formulaic readings. Many of the early American reviews, for instance, idealized Anne Frank's story and preferred to interpret it as inspiring and not tragic or disconsolate. American readers favored seeing the diary as a testament of hope, from which, as one early reviewer put it, a gleam of redemption may arise. Another insisted that no matter how poor and constricted the conditions under which she lived, and spirit could not be imprisoned or thwarted. And no less a public figure than Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of the then president, affirmed that the diary, and I quote Mrs. Roosevelt, makes poignantly clear the ultimate shining nobility of the human spirit. This tendency to stress the uplifting aspects of Anne Frank's story and subordinate its more harrowing dimensions reached its culmination in the 1955 stage play The Diary of Anne Frank by Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett. More than any other reading of the diary, the Goodrich and Hackett adaptation was responsible for projecting an image of Anne Frank that was cheerfully buoyant and ultimately positive. In essence, the two authors recreated Anne Frank as a triumphant figure, characterized by such irrepressible hope and tenacious optimism as to overcome any final sense of a cruel end. The playwrights even went so far as to have Otto Frank utter these words at the very end of the play, and I quote now from the play, these are the words supposedly of Anne Frank's father, it seems strange, he says, to say this, that anyone would be happy in the concentration camp, but Anne was happy in the camp in Holland where they first took us. The notion seems to me as implausible as it is silly, but it struck a resonant chord. Reviewing the play for the Herald Tribune, Walter Kerr wrote, and I quote him, soaring through the center of the play with the careless gaiety of a bird that simply cannot be caged is Anne Frank herself. Anne is not going to her death. She is going to leave a dent on life and let death take what's left. Echoing this view, the reviewer for the New York Post wrote, the play brought about the reincarnation of Anne Frank as though she'd never been dead. All of that a direct quote. Audiences, therefore, would leave the theater knowing, of course, that Anne Frank had died, but nevertheless feeling that she had not been defeated. In short, the Anne Frank who emerged in this play as well as in George Stevens' film version that followed shortly afterwards, was fashioned to evoke the most conventional of responses about man's inhumanity to man, the triumph of goodness over evil, the eternal verities of the human spirit, and other such banalities. Both the play and the film drew on the conventions of theatrical melodrama to link audiences of the time to the war years, but in a way that would not be too upsetting. 
the harshness of history tended to be left behind in these adaptations, as was much of Anne Frank's Jewish identity, and in their place, softer, more universal, and more acceptable images of a young girl's gaiety and moral gallantry came to the fore. This image, it's important to note, was very much in conformity with the real Otto Frank's own views of his daughter's diary. He did not regard it as an especially Jewish book, he didn't want it to be known in those terms, and he did not want to see it dramatized as a Jewish play. Anne's message, as her father understood it and wanted it presented, was a universal one, an emphasis that Goodrich and Hackett themselves favored and set out to give dramatic shape to in their theater script. What we have here, in short, is a piece of European history repackaged on Broadway and in Hollywood as a protest against war and discrimination in general. It produced a version of Anne Frank that was far more welcome to people in the 1950s than the image of a Jewish teenager hounded to an early death by the Nazis would have been. As played by Susan Strasberg on stage and by Millie Perkins on screen, Anne Frank appeared as vivacious and as a lovable girl next door, a figure that suited the general spirit of post-war prosperity in America and conformed to a political mood that was generally feel-good and conservative. In thinking about Anne Frank in these terms, we need to keep in mind that the Holocaust as we know it today had not yet begun to inform public consciousness in any deep sense. It was only in the early 1960s that a much grimmer understanding of Jewish fate during the Nazi period began to take hold with the publication of Elie Wiesel's Night and Hannah Arendt's writings on Adolf Eichmann. With the appearance of these books and other books and films that would follow, the Nazi genocide directed against the Jews was disclosed to mass audiences in far starker ways than had been the case a decade earlier. During the 1950s, the popular centerpiece of the war years was Anne Frank, but a very particular image of Anne Frank, radiant, fun-loving, and ever-optimistic, even as the shadows of war were deepening around her. Largely shaped by the Goodrich and Hackett stage play and by George Stevens's award-winning film, this affirmative sense of Anne Frank culminates in the line for which she is best known, and I quote it, in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. This uplifting image caught on worldwide, and to this day it remains the dominant sense of who Anne Frank was and what she symbolizes. Dominant does not necessarily mean exclusive, however, and in more recent years, numerous other representations of Anne Frank have emerged, some of which challenge the dehistoricized, dejudaized, and largely sentimentalized version of Anne Frank as a saintly figure who in the end 
will defy her persecutors and escape the indignity and finality of a gruesome death. Of the many sources that shape and reshape the image we are considering this evening, I want to call your attention to four in particular. Each of these represents a turn away from the sentimentalizing trends of representing Anne Frank that characterized so much of the attention to the diary over the past half century. Whether the Anne Frank they give us is the Anne Frank that mass audiences are prepared to embrace, however, is another matter, and maybe we might ponder this question together at the end of my presentation. In 1986, a team of scholars at the Netherlands State Institute for War Documentation brought out a large and copiously documented critical edition of the Diary of Anne Frank. The American version appeared in 1989. From a scholarly standpoint, this volume's importance cannot be overemphasized, for unlike anything that had been published before or since, it draws attention to Anne Frank as a writer. It's long been recognized that the youthful author of the famous diary was precociously gifted, but it's only through the critical edition that one comes to see the full extent of her literary ambitions and can grasp the complex compositional history of her work. The story is fascinating and still not widely known. In brief, it amounts to this. Anne Frank not only wrote, but rewrote many of her diary entries. She was aware of the exceptional nature of the experience she was living through, and she recognized that a well-crafted account of it would have historical value. And so, even as she composed her sentences anew each day, she revisited her earlier jottings and set about shaping a manuscript for publication, perhaps as a novel, in the post-war period. Tragically, as we know, she did not live to see that project realized. To be sure, a book widely known as The Diary of Anne Frank exists, and for decades now has been, has been an established part of the literary canon of the 20th century. The latest version of it is even called the definitive edition, but it really is only a version established by her newest translator, Miriam Pressler, who has shaped the book in large part on Otto Frank's early editing of his daughter's writings, as well as on some of the material in the critical edition. The truth is we will never have a text of the diary that might be regarded as definitive for the simple reason that Anne Frank did not live long enough to complete such a book nor did she authorize others to finalize a version in her name. Nevertheless, by examining the textual variants gathered in the critical edition, readers can study her innumerable editorial changes and appreciate how serious and accomplished the young writer Anne Frank truly was. The volume is laborious to read, and admittedly is not for everyone. 
But inasmuch as it takes us behind the symbol and discloses the writerly Anne Frank, it makes a unique and valuable contribution. One cannot think of Anne Frank as a writer, of course, without looking carefully at what she's written. And the more one looks, the more one sees how intelligent and even how complex an author the young girl was. Here, by way of illustration, are some sentences from her diary entry of April the 11th, 1944, and I quote her. We have been pointedly reminded that we are in hiding, that we are Jews in chains, chained to one spot without any rights but with a thousand duties. Who has inflicted this upon us? Who has made us Jews different from all other people? Who has allowed us to suffer so terribly up until now? It is God, she continues, who has made us as we are, but it will be God, too, who will raise us up again. If we bear all this suffering, and if there are still Jews left, when it's over, then Jews, instead of being doomed, will be held up as an example. Who knows? It might even be our religion from which the world and all peoples learn good. We can never become just Netherlanders or just English or representatives of any country for that matter. We will always remain Jews, but we want to, too. God has never deserted our people. Right through the ages there have been Jews. Through all the ages they have had to suffer, but it has made them strong, too. I find this passage quite remarkable for what it reveals about Anne Frank's understanding of herself within the stream of Jewish history. And without making undue claims for her as a Jewish religious thinker, she was, after all, only a 15-year-old kid, one can appreciate the thoughtfulness with which she reflects seriously about divinity. This passage, however was deleted from the Goodrich and Hackett play entirely. And in its place there appears the following weak substitution, and I quote now from the play, we're not the only people who have had to suffer. There have always been people who have had to, sometimes one race, sometimes another. These lines are altogether without source or analogy in the diary itself, and they generalize the figure of Anne Frank to the point of deracinating her. They are, however, typical of the major thrust of the play, which has given to the world an Anne Frank who is emotionally much thinner, intellectually less thoughtful, and spiritually and psychologically far less serious than the Anne Frank of the diary. To get her at her most authentic, therefore, one should bypass Goodrich and Hackett's pallid and conventional rewrite of Anne Frank and read her in her own words. Like no other source that we have, the critical edition of the diary enables us to do that. What the diary cannot do in any of its versions, of course, is complete the tale of Anne Frank, 
For hers is a story that does not end so much as it suddenly stops. Following her last entry of August the 1st, 1944, Anne Frank and the seven other occupants of the secret annex were arrested. They were sent first to a prison in Amsterdam, then to Westerbork, a transit camp in the north of Holland, and then on the very last transport train to leave Westerbork, they were sent to Auschwitz. The outlines of these facts, plus that of Anne's death in Bergen-Belsen, perhaps in early March 1945, have long been known. In 1958, the German writer Ernst Schnabel published a book that traced some of this history, but Schnabel's account, while interesting, is completely undocumented, so it's impossible to verify what the author reports about Anne Frank's life beyond the secret annex. The book also idealizes Anne Frank and contributes to the mystique that was rapidly growing up around her and sanctifying her image as that of a martyr. What is lacking in Schnabel, fortunately, has been provided by the Dutch writer and filmmaker, Willy Lindwer, who produced both a valuable film and a book about Anne Frank's fate in the months following her arrest and incarceration in the Nazi camp system. Lindwer's book, entitled The Last Seven Months of Anne Frank, is harrowing to read, but also essential to anyone who wishes to know the final chapter and thus, and thus the full truth of Anne Frank's life. Based on the testimony of six Jewish women who survived the deprivations and the torments that wore Anne Frank down and ultimately took her life, Lindwer's book offers documented eyewitness accounts of Anne Frank's time in Westerbork, Auschwitz, and Bergen-Belsen. Here, in the words of one of his witnesses, Rachel von Amerung in Frankfurter, herself a former inmate of Bergen-Belsen, is an account of Anne Frank's end. And I quote now from this woman's testimony. I saw Anne and her sister Margot again in the barracks. The Frank girls were almost unrecognizable since their hair had been cut off. They were much balder than we were, and they were cold, just like all the rest of us. It was winter and you didn't have any clothes, so all of the ingredients for illness were present. They were in bad shape. Day by day they got weaker. You could see that they were very sick. The Frank girls were so emaciated, they looked terrible. They had little squabbles caused by their illness because it was clear that they had typhus. They had those hollowed-out faces, skin over bone. They were terribly cold. They had the least desirable places in the barracks, below near the door, which was constantly opened and closed. You heard them constantly screaming, close the door, close the door, and the voices became weaker every day. You could really see both of them dying. They showed the recognizable symptoms of typhus, that gradual wasting away, a sort of apathy with occasional revivals, 
until they became so sick that there wasn't any hope, and their end came. I don't know which one was carried out earlier, Anne or Margot. Suddenly I didn't see them anymore, so I had to assume that they had died. Look, I didn't pay any special attention to them, because there were so many others who also died. The dead were always carried outside, laid down in front of the barracks, and when you were let out in the morning to go to the latrine, you had to walk past them. That was just as dreadful as going to the latrine itself, because gradually everyone got typhus. In front of the barracks was a kind of wheelbarrow in which you could take care of your physical needs. Sometimes you also had to take those wheelbarrows to the latrine. Possibly it was on one of those trips to the latrine that I walked past the bodies of the Frank sisters. They had been put down in front of the barracks, and then the heaps would be cleared away. A huge hole would be dug, and they were thrown into it. That I'm sure of. That must have been their fate, because that's what happened to other people there. I don't have a single reason for assuming that it was any different for them than for the other women with us who died at that time. This description of the last days of Anne Frank is corroborated by the testimony of other women cited in Lindwer's book, and there's every reason to credit its veracity. Typhus was rampant in Bergen-Belsen at the time of Anne Frank's incarceration there. The winter was harsh, there was little food, and for many there was no suitable shelter. As a result of disease and deprivation, tens of thousands died in that camp. Their remains piled up in the huge corpse mounds that are marked to this day by signs that read, here lie 3,000 here lie 5,000, etc. Anne Frank, not yet 16 years old, but malnourished, exhausted, disease-ridden, is in one of those anonymous heaps of the dead at Bergen-Belsen. Encountering such grim information, readers of Willie Lindworth's book are not likely to endorse the notion that Anne Frank was happy in Hitler's camps, or that she could have retained the view that despite everything, people are really good at heart. It's difficult to think about, but her final lot must have been one of unimaginable misery. Lindwer's portrait of the last months of Anne Frank's life is unnerving. But it's also necessary if one wants to move beyond the popular image of the young girl as a courageous and implacably optimistic figure and recognize that like a million or more other Jewish children, she succumbed to a cruel and premature death. The history leading up to that end is ably told in Melissa Muller's Anne Frank, a biography published in 1998, which became the source of a four-hour television series produced on Anne Frank by ABC in 2001. The book fills in much of the historical and familial contexts of Anne Frank's story, 
and thereby helps to demystify it. John Blair's Academy Award-winning film, entitled Anne Frank Remembered, 1998, works similarly and usually to good effect. The opening and closing frames of Blair's two-hour film, however, deliberately present this story's story in ways that affirm the universalizing tendencies of Otto Frank's loving but tendentious management of his daughter's image and of Goodrich and Hackett's further elaboration of this image in their dramatization of the diary. Blair's film, at least as I read it, is a valuable chronicle of the German-Jewish lineage of Anne Frank, of Hitler's murderous war against the Jews, and of the collaborative role of a portion of the Dutch population. According to Blair, though, Anne's story, and I quote him, is not only a Holocaust story, but one about discrimination in general. Faithful to this notion, the film closes with a brief interview with Nelson Mandela, a heroic figure, but one who obviously had no connection to the Holocaust. Otto Frank is quoted in support of the view within the film that his daughter's diary is not so much an expression of Jewish experience during the Holocaust as it is a universal message of personal courage and hope in the face of oppression. To make this point stick, at the end of the film, one hears the line once again, in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. None of this, mind you, is wrong per se, but any artistic work that sees the Holocaust as a metaphor of the evils of intolerance or discrimination in general risks not seeing it clearly in its specific historical dimensions. In this respect, Blair's film, which in some important ways is a corrective to Goodrich and Hackett, shares an ideological affinity with their play. The last work I want to call your attention to set out to loosen the hold of this universalizing trend in a very bold way. It succeeds in part, but only in part, but because the effort itself is commendable, you should know of it. I refer to Wendy Kesselman's adaptation of the Goodrich and Hackett play, which opened in New York at the Music Box Theater on December the 4th, 1997. Kesselman, however, was not free to rework the earlier version of the theater piece as extensively as she might have wished, but was bound by contract to retain the main lines of Goodrich and Hackett's presentation of Anne Frank's story. <laughs> Nevertheless, in some important ways, she managed to neutralize some of the feel-good sentimentality of the 1955 stage play. Through dialogue that makes explicit references to Judaism, Jewish suffering, and a sense of Jewish national belonging, and also by having prayers recited in Hebrew on stage, Kesselman reshaped the Goodrich and Hackett version 
to emphasize the Jewish identities of Anne and the others in hiding with her. And by foregrounding as she does the yellow stars that these Jews were forced to wear right from the beginning of Act One, and also by bringing Nazis on stage at the end of Act Two, things that Goodrich and Hackett failed to do, she makes more graphic some of the horror of the Holocaust, which was muted greatly in the earlier version of the play. Here, too, one is presented with a line, in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart, but the voiceover of this line at the end of the play is immediately followed by a Nazi officer shouting, Raus! His harsh command, delivered as a scream, not only drowns out Anne Frank's optimistic words, but shows that in the face of Nazi terror, they lose any resonance they might have had. The final words of the play are spoken by Otto Frank, but this time nothing is said about Anne being happy in a concentration camp. Instead, they reveal the overwhelmingly sad fact that of the eight former occupants of the secret annex, all but he lost their lives in the Nazi camps. In sum, Kesselman's rewriting of Goodrich and Hackett, like the other works that I've described briefly to you, are evidence that we need not remain forever stuck in the 1950s with regard to popular perceptions of Anne Frank. At the same time, however, others are content to remain pretty much in that time warp, and in presenting their own versions of Anne Frank, they show that almost nothing has changed. Kesselman's rewrite of the dramatic version of the diary had only a relatively brief run in New York, and as far as I know, is not currently being performed anywhere. When theatergoers today attend a production of the stage play, the Anne Frank they're likely to meet is the one drawn up by Goodrich and Hackett in the 1950s. In other words, for all of her efforts to change perceptions of Anne Frank, Kesselman does not seem to have won a wide acceptance. Similar tendencies can be observed elsewhere. And I will close by mentioning a couple of these. Enid Futterman, for instance, who wrote the lyrics for a popular musical entitled I Am Anne Frank, which opened in New York in 1996, had the following words to say about Anne Frank. She knew evil, but she also knew something about the essential goodness of the soul. Evil triumphed in Bergen-Belsen, but the spiritual war was won. Anne died, but she won. She transcended her own suffering. She transcended her own death. These words are from an interview with a playwright of February the 3rd, 2000, well after Lindwer's book, Muller's biography, Blair's film, and Kesselman's play had appeared, but they register no awareness whatsoever that other perceptions of Anne Frank are in circulation that stand against the cheery sentiments about Anne Frank's 
transcendent triumph over death. The same holds true for the following, taken from a review of a 1998 musical, this one entitled Yours, Anne, and I quote, Regardless of knowing that Anne and her family were discovered and killed in Nazi death camps, you can't help but watch Yours, Anne, with that strange, impossible hope that somehow she is going to make it. It's hard to imagine that the light of this impressive young spirit can be taken away. The writer concludes her review with no irony whatsoever by quoting the words that are said to sum up the meaning of Anne Frank's story, in spite of everything, but let me not even finish the quotation, because by now you know these words yourself and can probably repeat them by heart. They are not false to a certain side of Anne Frank, the cheerful, optimistic side, and in part she was cheerful and optimistic, but they hardly suffice to encapsulate the full meaning of Anne Frank's life and death. We are fortunate to have her words and the words of so many others about her, but what they signify is as elusive and contested as the meaning of the Holocaust itself. Thank you. Would you comment on Cynthia Ozick's article that appeared in the New Yorker, I think about three years ago, in which she very much felt the same way as you have spoken, but went even farther in saying that perhaps Anne Frank should never have been published because it puts such a rosy interpretation on the Holocaust and that that itself was a great disservice. Yes, I do, I do know that article well. Uh, Cynthia Ozick was very worked up and angry, clearly, when she wrote that article, um, for some of the reasons recounted in this talk. Uh, no, it's good that we have the diary, and it's, uh, and it's, it, it's an extreme and nihilistic notion to say we'd be better off without the diary or we'd be better off without Schindler's List, or even we'd be better off without the Goodrich and Hackett play, as is clear from my presentation. Uh, the Goodrich and Hackett play raises many concerns. Nonetheless, having said that, uh, it's one of the sources of mass education about, about this history, as is Schindler's List. And so long as one doesn't end there, if one begins there and then goes on to other things, maybe more serious things, more responsible versions, then it's all to the good. So although uh, I know Cynthia Ozick personally very well and we're good friends, um, and in many respects we see eye to eye, in this particular case we differ, in fact. Yes, uh, would you uh, explain why uh, this de denial of particular particularism, this uh, sentimentalism, this, what, what, what are your explanations for this process of, of denial and stripping it of these other meanings? Right. Uh, look, any, any serious engagement with the Holocaust 
um, is accompanied by very turbulent feelings of uh, guilt, um, responsibility, uh, dread, horror, and you can pile up your, your own lexicon of descriptives on top of those. It's an awful uh, chapter of 20th century history. There's nothing whatsoever redemptive about it. And there's a nice question, Roger, really, how much Holocaust is enough? How much Holocaust can people take? And what might be done to connect to it uh, this far but not that far? And consequently, and I don't think any of this is calculated, I don't think that anybody sits up late at night drafting designs of evasion, but uh, most people want to keep it at arm's length. And one way to keep it at arm's length is to recognize that it's one instance of man's inhumanity to man, that it's one instance of mass suffering, that it may have happened to the Jews this time, but it's happening to other people other times. And uh, there, is a certain, there is a certain argument to be made along those lines, but if one proceeds ultimately along those lines, then what you're looking at is some abstraction some universal, if you're really interested in man's inhumanity to man, you know, look at the Los Angeles Times any day of the week and you'll find enough stories about street crime, let alone news from abroad. Um, and all of that is heavy and terrible, but it's not a Holocaust. But it's not easy to deal with the Holocaust. It's not easy to acknowledge that genocide was enacted some decades ago against the Jewish people, who after all is responsible, who, was, who were the perpetrators, what history and ideology and politics underwrote that assault, and to what degree uh, are very large numbers of people alive today um, akin somehow in their own thinking, not behaving, but thinking to all of that. The Jews are not a beloved people, never have been, and the singling out of the Jews for a genocide has burdened Western consciousness with uh, a weight of guilt uh, and shame that has not been dealt with adequately to this day. So the various evasive techniques to try to connect to it and disconnect from it at the same time. Something like that. Uh, and of course underneath it all is the great Christian story of redemption. Life is not supposed to end horribly. It's supposed to end salvifically. And it's simply unbearable to think that uh, Anne Frank, bright, lively, lovable, becomes a corpse before she's 16 years old and ends up in a trash heap of, uh, of other corpses in Bergen-Belsen. I visited Bergen-Belsen some years ago just to see what it's like. And you go from one corpse mound to another. It says in German, here ruin, here rest, 3,000, 5,000, 8,000. Well, the language itself here ruined. They're not. They're not. They're not lying in rest. They were murdered, 
and uh, shoveled into those pits like garbage, like trash. And who did all that after all? Etc., etc., etc.